Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast, filling in for our regular host, Mike Roberts. I'm Ken Nahigian. Joining us today are two very special guests, Congressman John Garamendi and World War II merchant marine veteran Dave Yoho. Welcome to you both. Congressman Garamendi is a relentless champion of the U.S. Maritime, and he is one of the most powerful voices in Congress in describing the need for robust shipbuilding, merchant marine, and domestic shipping capacity. Thank you for being here, sir. We really, really hope that you and your family are doing well during this health crisis. We know you have a very large family, and uh, we certainly do hope that everybody is well. Because we're so excited to have you here today, I'm going to go ahead and limit my talking and ask if you wouldn't mind just reflecting to our audience about the importance of the 100th anniversary of the Jones Act, and obviously its significance to the nation. Um, It would be great if you could introduce Mr. Yoho and lead us a little bit into discussion about the role of the Merchant Marine in World War II and also the Congressional Gold Medal Act that will be given to World War II merchant mariners, and rightfully so. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Congressman Garamendi. Privilege and honor to be uh, on the podcast and particularly be with Dave Yoho, who I'll introduce in a few moments. I think we need to really understand the critical importance of the U.S. Merchant Marine and the Jones Act. We see this principally in the history. We certainly see it in World War II. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But we also know uh, that in the more current world in which we live, the American merchant marine system is absolutely essential. First of all, it's a very, very big jobs issue in the United States, not just the ships that are on the blue water out in the ocean, but also those that are up and down the rivers of the United States. Uh, We're talking about tens of thousands of jobs, not only on those barges and ships, but also in the shipyards that are building and maintaining it. The Jones Act is absolutely crucial. One of the great examples of the way in which the Jones Act was critical to the success of the United States is World War II. The Jones Act was in place for almost 25 years prior to World War II. The result of that was that there was a foundation available when that war broke out and we had to move across the Pacific, across the Atlantic to bring our troops and supplies. But even before America entered the war, The Jones Act and the Merchant Marines were playing a critical role in supplying the necessary lend-lease equipment to the United Kingdom, to Great Britain, as they were involved in a desperate battle with Germany and the Nazi elements who at that time had taken over most of Europe. And so there was men and women like Dave Yoho who were on those ships during that war. Now, my understanding, Dave, that you actually joined the Merchant Marines at the rather old age of 15 and served throughout most of the war on uh, tankers, we do know that you were in a very difficult, dangerous situation. The highest casualty rate of any of the units that fought in World War II were the Merchant Marines. They were targeted. They were targeted by the, uh, the Nazi submarines, not just in the open Atlantic, but up and down the coast of the United States as oil was transported from uh, Venezuela and other places to the refineries and then off to, to Europe. Similarly, in the Pacific, a little later in the war, the merchant marines were playing the critical role. We simply could not have succeeded in Europe or in the Pacific were it not for the merchant marines, for the hundreds of ships that were quickly built in 
shipyards that were prior to the war producing ships for the American maritime industry. And they obviously changed from producing ships for the industry to producing ships for the war effort. And so let's talk about that. Dave, welcome to the broadcast. Absolutely delighted. Tell me about yourself. At the age of 15, where were you? What were you doing? And what in the world possessed you in a, in a fit of uh, sanity or maybe insanity to join the Merchant Marines at the age of 15? Congressman, at the risk of seeming quid pro quo, uh, we're here today largely because of what you and your aides and your colleagues did to bring attention to us. Well, World War II started out December 7th, 1941. Now, during that period of time, keep in mind, we had 130 million people in the United States. And we put 16 million of those in uniform, 250,000 recruited for the United States Merchant Marine under the name of the United States Maritime Service. Uh, I'll just make that very brief. Two distinctly separate elements. We went in, I went in because my friends were a few years older and they were going in. The age that you could get into the Navy, 17, the Army, 18. And we only again had 130 million people. We put 12 and a half percent of those people in uniform and we were eager to go. There was a sense of patriotism that may never exist again. The recruiting stations were open. I enlisted in the US Navy at 15. They found out I had a falsified birth certificate. Make this very brief, I didn't get in. I was accepted and they found out and immediately I was never transported. So then I heard about the US Maritime Service. Went down, I was only 15 there. For whatever reason, I was one of the 250,000 who were recruited. I often say, Congressman, if people ask me, didn't they realize you were underage? I said, yeah, well, we were pretty desperate at the time. 250,000 of us were recruited. And you go, I was in Sheepshead Bay, did my basic training there, then you put on a ship. I was put on what was relatively a new style of tanker, a T2, and we could refuel other ships. So it was often referred to as a bleed oiler. And they ended up going down the coast, going through the canal, coming out of the Pacific, and I spent a big, big part of my life, all of my 16th year, I spent there when the war ended four days later. It ended on August 15, 1945. Four days later, I turned 17. Now, I, I noted with some joy that you said, by whatever your drives were. 15, I think I believed that I knew everything. I was raised in the inner city. I had street smarts and I had no idea about what was going to happen. And what happened? Instant maturation. Because when you're out there on a ship and you have duties to perform and there are no holidays and there are no uh, sick leaves, so you do your job and you do your job in the focus of how it was trained to you. And that's what I did. I'm not unique in that. There were hundreds of others like me, but I do say this, we are down now to less than 2,000 and we do so appreciate the Congressional Gold Medal. It is the time for us to weep at our losses and be joyful for our accomplishments. Well, Dave, that's a fascinating story. Where were you uh, raised and what city were you in at the age of 15 and decided to uh, head off to the uh, US military, the, the fit of patriotism that overcame you and uh, most Americans at that time? Where were you living? I was born and raised in the inner city of Philadelphia. I was a family of the Depression. I was born in 1928, 1929. The 
stock market folded in 1933, the banks closed. My parents never owned a home. My mother had maybe an eighth grade education, my father about a 10th. I was uh, somewhat gifted with partial recall, so I would skip twice in the school system. And I was 15 and a uh, junior in high school when I decided to undertake enlistment. And that's what I did. Well, wise or not, it gave me a, an instant uh, maturation when you face the duties of manhood. And at 15, you think you're smart, no different than today. But we were needed at the time. When the war was ended and I came home, I found out that the branch of the service I was in was not given military status. Instead, we were discharged and we had no Bill of Rights. Uh, we had no GI Bill. And so because of that, I got my high school diploma on a GED. And then I enrolled in Temple University and went to night school for three and a half years to get an undergraduate degree. And I'm not complaining. This is not about me. It's about those 250,000 of us and the things that we went through to be nominated as the largest fatality group. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. You just described one of the tragedies of the war, not just the deaths and the casualties that occurred in the Merchant Marines, but the fact that you were never considered to be the military. And it took almost, uh, it was in the 70s, if I recall, before the veterans of the American Merchant Marine were considered to be military veterans and given the uh, courtesy as well as the benefits of being an American veteran. Do you remember that time when the uh, Congress finally came around to say, oh yeah, by the way, let's recognize the service that these uh, merchant mariners did? Yeah, I do, Congressman, I, I can bring it up. In 1987, uh, the law was introduced, 1988, it came through Congress and, uh, and was approved. In 1988, it was 43 years after the war ended. I was already close to 60 years of age. I had had a big business career by then. I didn't need any help buying a home or getting a college education. So they gave it to us. What we were denied, we were denied. And I don't believe there's any value, no value at all in complaining about it or blaming other people. But that was 1988. Why the delay? Well, it's just the way the world works. There's another crisis, there's another crisis. No sooner did World War II end, we were involved in the Korean crisis. And that gave us all an attention. And after Korea with Vietnam, and after that is Desert Storm. So there's always another crisis. And the younger of today, anybody younger, I'm 92 years of age, and I take great pride in it. I came out when I was 17 and went back to school in the state of Pennsylvania. I wasn't old enough to vote. I wasn't old enough to buy a drink. I wasn't old enough to do a lot of other things but I had served my country. Some has been unfortunate, and as you well know, because I know some of your experience and your background, some of it is what you're called to do. You're called to do it. Uh, you don't reason those things. And the aftermath, you have to lay in God's hands, how it works. And it didn't work out all that bad for me. I don't look like I'm dressed or on my surroundings or anything of penury. So I have, I have no complaints. I feel sad, comrades, though. 
the thing that I found as we began to uh, push for the uh, Congressional Gold Medal was an extraordinary group of veterans, merchant mariners that served in the war, their experiences in the war, and, and their continued optimism about this country. Perhaps that's the, uh, what do we call it, the greatest generation, and you're certainly a great representative of the greatest generation. Your enthusiasm for America. Obviously, at the moment, America is going through another one of its uh, crises, the uh, COVID-19 crisis, the current uh, civil unrest, the issues of still, after all these years, trying to make sure that every American, whatever their color and race, has opportunity and, to, and can succeed in this country. So there's always seems to be a crisis. But those crises, finally, even though we continue to have them, finally, the Congress was able to get this done and provide the Congressional Gold Medal that is so richly and necessarily as just a, um, an expression of the American people for the sacrifice, the very serious human sacrifice that you and your colleagues made during World War II and beyond and continued to build this country as the greatest generation. It's fascinating. So you were out in the Pacific and your task on that uh, oiler was to provide fuel for the other ships. So were you in the Western Pacific? The way it worked now, the sea lanes were that you went down the Atlantic coast, you went through the Panama Canal, you ended up in the Pacific. Now, from the point we entered the Pacific Ocean, our first area of uh, where we met with other ships, we went unescorted through the Pacific. It's a big, big ocean. And the T2 tanker of that day probably could hit the 15 to 17 knots, the tanker could. So now we go out to a place called Ulithi. That's where we first gathered for a convoy. Now, what happens is the reality is faced in those 20-some days it takes you to get from point A to point B, and the tedium bound with the unknown takes you there. Young people are not ready for that. We are not ready. You, you watch the average 16, 17, 18-year-old person today, they like to sleep during the day. That is a behavioral moat that comes from their development. We went through it, but it had to be squashed. So when the war is over now, uh, we, what, what can we accomplish? We came out in this tanker and we refueled other ships. We were at Saipan and Tinia after they were secured. We moved up to refuel the fleets that were in the area of Okinawa, the last major invasion in the Pacific. Radio silence, you're not in contact with anything. There are no holidays. So you're waiting for somebody to tell you what to do at all times. I, unfortunately, also was in the engine room. A little stupid. If you ever see a tanker, the tanker has what we call a low draft, meaning you see this much of the tanker and this much is below water. So when you're in the engine room, you are down in the engine room. And people ask me, were you ever in serious danger? If you said serious danger, was there a ship next to us firing at didn't go through that, but we were in the combat zone. We were also in the zone where the, for the second time, the Japanese introduced the kamikaze. The kamikaze was only twice in Leyte Gulf and Okinawa. So we faced those things. And uh, the thought never got into my mind when I volunteered to do this. First time gunnery practice went off on our ship. There are big things on ships called cowls, C-O-W-L-S. They suck in the air. When you're down in the engine room, they accelerate all the sound down into the engine room. And I told, turned to an older guy, I said, an older guy, an older guy, he's probably 23 years old. I said, now we're down here, 
and there's steel steps that go up every eight feet. There's some, so there's about five of those steps or divisions uh, you have to get up. It's 38 to 40 feet to get up the deck set. So I said to him, so if we take a hit, what's going to be the greatest way to get out of here? And he said to me, kid, if we take a hit, you ain't going to get out of here. My first realization, 16 years old, that's where I am. Well, the explanation is courage and duty and the recognition that you had a job, that you're going to do it, even though you knew that if that ship were hit, you would almost certainly not survive. Incredible story. I remember I, I was uh, actually born in the last year of the war, and I grew up without a television on our ranch in California, but occasionally we would catch a, uh, a World War II clip, which was very common in the 50s. And always there was a tanker or a um, supply ship that was uh, at risk of being torpedoed. This was just the constant things that I saw growing up. And I'm going, how could those people do it? How could they be out there with basically no way to protect themselves? And the reality of that was the casualty rate was horrendous. Uh, it's, it's really incredible. As we look to the future, Share with me a little bit about how you see the uh, American Merchant Marine today, uh, what you think uh, the future might be, and uh, maybe we can talk about your reflection on the role of the American Merchant Marine today. I really am not uh, that well educated in what they do today. I have to be truthful with you. My affinity and my affiliation comes with the American Merchant Marine veterans of World War II, of which is it's a largely diminishing number. But I really speak for veterans groups all over the world, and I accept this as an honor. I think God said, here you are, guy. You're such a smart aleck at 15. Here's what I'm going to give you as a reward. I am accepted today as an unusual speaker. I attract a crowd. Uh, Memorial Day 2017, I made a presentation at the World War II Memorial on Memorial Day. And Fox News streamed it, and we had 1,250,000 people to tell the message to. When I accepted the gold medal for the U.S. Maritime Service, I did so by being filmed like I am today to a limited audience. So I see my role, Congressman, to serve the needs of other people. And I don't want that to come on altruistic. I have had a great life. I'm financially independent. I have a great family. God possesses me with this voice I have today, with the demeanor I have today. And I think God gave me this gift for a purpose. And my purpose is to speak for those who may not have speech for themselves. And in fact, uh, I want to thank you again, because your actions in bringing us the medal and helping us to get this medal and those senators who supported you. I mean, you're, you're speaking for us. We're a diminishing group. I know you met some of our people when they did the, on the hill, when they came to on the hill, and, and I appreciate that. The, the thing I think that is lacking is in the American educational system. If I talk to you about the calamity in Barry Italy in June 43, or the Merman's Run, which is the greatest naval disaster with unarmed ships, 35 ships, 11 get through. This is the history I would like people to know about. And I, I, I don't suffer from invitations where to speak, except in the school and college level. For whatever reason, they don't want to teach this in the history class. And there is no way to go back in time and say, give us justification for what we did. That's claptrap. 
I don't want to go back. If someone says these are the worst of times, let's say try growing up in the inner city. My parents paid $11 a month for rent when my father worked and for 27 months. He was unemployed. And if you go back there, we made it. This is still the greatest country in the world. I want everyone to know, but I don't want people to forget our history. I stand for my flag. I stand for the Constitution of this United States. I believe that those that have shall give to those that have not. And if this is my gift, I want my gift to be heard. And I'd like the voice of this expression, this gold medal that we receive, to mean something to the students of today. When I do program, I did a program last year where all the academies were there from uh, the officer, you know, and they were there from West Point, Annapolis, the Coast Guard Academy, all those young people there. And I tell them, you're representing the greatest country. And I don't care what our mistakes are. I don't care what political decisions we make that didn't go right. They're made by human beings. There was no intent. There was no intent to disgrace. There may have been individuals, but there was no combined effect to not treat us as veterans. It happened. And so if it hadn't happened, you and I wouldn't even be here talking today. And I do thank America for listening to our message. I think we have a powerful message. Only, only a minute part of it is ever exposed. And it's through opportunities like this, and I get to meet you on the screen. And uh, I know of your work. I studied exactly where you got to where you are. Well, let's not talk about me here. Let's talk about the very important piece that you just brought to us, and that is patriotism in its largest sense. A sense of history, a sense of purpose, a sense of destiny, and the necessity for all of us to participate and to give what we may have for the goal of this country's future. One of the things that you talked about in the necessity of understanding history really is critical today. I must very, very quickly talk about if we knew the history of the American merchant marines uh, in World War II and in the development of the economy of this nation, we would not be fighting as in almost a desperate battle to maintain the Jones Act, where we have these tens of thousands of people, uh, Americans, that are now employed in the merchant marines in our rivers, on our rivers. Uh, out in the ocean, providing the foundation for the ability of the United States to be able to conduct a war, should it ever be necessary, and also to be a continued strong player in the world economy. But most Americans don't know that history. They don't have that foundation. And then when it comes down to a policy issue to maintain or to not maintain in the American maritime industry, there's no foundation of knowledge. So as you talk about that history, I get excited. I see an opportunity in the present situation that you and the uh, remaining World War II merchant mariners have in telling America the story of the merchant marines. You mentioned the, the mirror mask. I'll bet there's not five members of the Congress that have that knowledge. I knew it was desperate. I knew there were enormous losses. Did I know that only 11 of the 35 ships actually were able to survive? What came of the others? Those were the casualties. Well, what happened was it, it was in June of 1942. We had only been in this morass of warfare between the East. And the, we, we had three wars going on. We fought on five continents. And all of a sudden, we had to get these goods over to one of our allies, Russia. 
So they put a convoy together in Redvik, Iceland, and the convicts, the, the convoys did that. They left for Redvik, they either went the northern course to get to uh, UK or the southern course to get to the uh, Mediterranean or the Pacific. So now they're putting this together to go to Redvik, Iceland. And there were 35 merchant ships surrounded by 24 combat ships. Now the combat ships are fast and they can move. The destroyers, destroyer escorts, and they even have tankers there, though they had Navy tankers, uh, not merchant tankers, so they had amazing. And they had a following of aircraft that could come from nearby aircraft carrier, and even had a protection of two submarines. And as they proceeded towards Reykjavik, like I said, within five days of getting there, the British Admiralty had in charge of that oceanic provision there. That's the way it was done. This is in charge. And, and the guy in charge was an Admiral Pound, Lord Admiral Pound. And his team said that in Norway, the largest battleship in the world, the Tirpitz, it was a, a German submarine, that, it was there. And they were afraid that that was going to come out and attack. So this guy made a decision. One man made the decision. He had the power and authority to do it. Draw away the combat ships. And they took them away. And in almost agony, the signal was sent back to the captains of these ships. You bastards are in for a hell of a fight. You're in a body of water that is 45 degrees below zero. If you hit that water, you get three or four minutes to survive. Hypothermia takes you like that. So then the next step is the ships. You have to go at the pace of the slowest ships. The, the vaunted uh, uh, Liberty ship, which we produced uh, such great ways to hold a Congress, but that couldn't go more than eight or nine knots. That's the slowest. Now the combat ship, 17 to 23 knots. The German submarine, 17 knots. And so the ships were sunk one by one and uh, only 11 ships got through. Now that Admiral did not intentionally kill us. That Admiral did not intend for the consequences that happened. And he is the one that's blamed for it. I don't blame anybody. It's a set of circumstances. People do what they feel and think is right at the time they do it, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. And so because of that though, we suffered. And all we asked was recognition and it never came. Those guys that came back who suffered in, in, in the, the, the numerous things, uh, malaria that we got in heated countries, uh, ulcers uh, because of the aggressive nature of our schedules. Later, ulcers were usually defined as H. pylori, something called asbestosis. Asbestosis is what happens when you're in the area of the engine room because the pipes are covered with asbestos. We know a lot more about us today. No one sent us into that understanding that. And we came out also with the undesignated disease, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we didn't recognize it then because it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy when, when the war ended, all the veterans, there were 440,000 total veterans who died. There were a million in hospital beds facing this otherwise not designated disease, post-traumatic stress disorder. Books were written about it. But someone in the wisdom of all this, whoever was in authority in our government said, we don't want too many people to hear about this. It's very discouraging. We didn't want to hear about in the early stages of the war, if you heard about that and it was publicized, how would you ever get the recruits to go on those ships? And a year later, the same thing happened in Barry, Italy. 
same thing. 30 ships in the harbor, uh, 22 of them sunk, eight burned beyond recognition. 30 ships in that harbor. And so we don't hear about those things. Now, I don't blame anybody for that. I blame you if you hear it and you don't want to hear more. I understand. Hell, talking to him about it right now bothers me. But I can't, I don't, I don't deal in the world of blame. It does absolutely no good. If I could find a way to get our message into the school systems and take your mind off of the vision and the hate that we see in this country today, instead think at 325 million, we came from 130 million. What the hell did we learn? Well, if you learn to visit it and you learn to hate, you don't have a very plentiful life. I'm sorry I got on a soapbox there to answer your question, though. David, is the soapbox that Americans need to, uh, your words on that soapbox are the words that America needs to hear. Your understanding of the, uh, of the potential of this nation uh, is a necessary message right now. We, we're living in a very difficult moment. It's not the only one that America's had. One of the things I was just, uh, as you were talking, I was doing a little uh, mental mathematical calculation here. As you described the sacrifices that were made by the merchant mariners, my mind was going, it was the late 80s before the merchant mariners were recognized as veterans and had veterans benefits available to them. By that time, probably two thirds of those uh, mariners uh, were no longer alive. And it was 75 years before the gold medal was signed into law, three quarters of a century after the incredible sacrifice and service that you and 250,000 other young Americans made during World War II. I, I guess that speaks to, as you said, maybe it speaks to the current uh, issues of the day that occupy our minds and gives us uh, no time to think about the sacrifices of those who preceded us. Uh, it also uh, speaks to the way in which we must today pay careful attention to those men and women in service, whether they're in the merchant marines or in the uh, other military services, uh, that they, they are sacrificing today and that we need to pay attention to that. Today, we do know about post-traumatic stress uh, disorder or syndrome, as it's called today. But even, even so, we're not paying attention to the other illnesses that our current military have as a result of service, exposure to chemicals. It took 30 years before Agent Orange was recognized as an illness acquired during the Vietnam War. And today, there are illnesses that are acquired by our military personnel that the military refuses to recognize exposure to chemicals and the like. Uh, we're moving legislation to try to deal with that. We need your perspective of history. And I am so grateful that you've joined us today uh, to share with us uh, your um, experiences and uh, even more important, your clear vision of America and its greatness and the sacrifices that are required to maintain that greatness. It's, it's incredible. Dave, some closing thoughts that you might have? Uh, I'd like to tag on to something you've just said. Uh, the reason I don't blame anyone for what happened, I took graduate studies in uh, behavior, clinical psychology, uh, when I was already pretty well off financially. I was in my 30s when I did this and still did a full-time job. But I took these studies and I told other people, I want to see how humanity is faring and what the, the truth was. I want to get my head unscrambled. I want to get my past, my past history, I want to get it unscrambled from where I am today. And I'd like to think that some of the things I learned there 
are so basic. I don't like the talking clinical terms when I talk to people about behavior, but here's what I will tell in a generalized statement. You cannot know what you do not know. That's any human being. You will never learn what you do not know until you can say, I do not know. And if you're not doing that, and I don't mean this in a bad sense, you have a bias because your bias extends to what you do know. And this is all you can know. If you were taught this in history, you can't go beyond this without studying beyond this. And we grow up in an area of ever expanding knowledge. The things that we have access today is unbelievable. Any of the things I tell you about today can be documented. And I receive many honors. I was at Normandy last year with the 75th anniversary and they treated me like a god over there. And when they brought the flag down at the end of the day, they gave it to me. Now those people know nothing about what I went through. And I wasn't about to tell them because I wanted them to understand their giving was the greatest gift. I received that flag for other veterans, not for myself. And I don't want that to sound altruistic. I was considered a very voluble uh, speaker to have at any kind of convention. I worked my way through uh, what I know about the audience and I'm very well accepted. Here's what I wanted to do. I wanted schools, universities, just open your mind a little to the point you cannot know what you do not know. And so what this does, what this gold medal did for us, it opened a venue that people can talk about. I get all these emails now. What is the gold medal? Why is the gold medal given? And that's wonderful because I cite to them, go find out what it is. It's going to be one of them issued. It's going to go to our academy. And then another man can wear it. And I can't walk around with my uniform, with uh, my braid. I, I can't do any of those things because I'm not there now. I'm here now. But I do believe I have a fundamental belief that if you keep striving to what we do, that American Merchant Marine Veterans Association operates with such a low budget. Why? Because the people they represent have all died off. There's only 1,900 left. And they got a great group of worker bees down there. And those people are striving to get the message. And it is the activity that you generate by giving us this gold medal. I don't have to have it to give to my grandchildren. They got too many artifacts to deal with that. What I have to give to them is the history of its receipt. And so uh, when I was representing the U.S. Maritime Service on Maritime Day, and they gave me an opportunity, I made a seven-minute speech. It's gone viral. A seven-minute speech goes, what does it tell me? Something intriguing in it. Not Dave Yoho. Something intriguing in these words, which I always end this way. When you're with others, tell them about us. Tell them what we did. Tell them how we served. Then say to them, we gave up our yesterdays for their tomorrows. Dave, that is a beautiful way to end this discussion. You're an incredible human being. Uh, you are an incredible spokesperson. And uh, you're the best example I know of the greatest generation. Thank you so very much. And with that, I'll say goodbye to all of our listeners. And thank you, Congressman. Thank you again. And extend this to your colleagues. I appreciate your efforts in our behalf, on our behalf. Thank you. Congressman Garamendi, Mr. Yoho, thank you so much for being with us today. It's such a treat for our audience to have an opportunity to hear from both of you. Uh, we thank you both for your service to this country and for being on this podcast today. Uh, we're going to go ahead and leave it right there for this episode of the American Maritime Podcast. 
and thank you for tuning in and encourage you to share this podcast with others who share a love and an interest in American Maritime. And thank you for the American Maritime Partnership for making this podcast happen. Uh, sitting in for our regular host, Mike Roberts, this is Ken Nahigian signing off. We'll see you the next time. <laughs>